You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, sir, people, it's time for truthful news of our Sahil al-Elama Sadiqa. And uh, by popular demand, uh, we have our very own uh, Professor Andre Dubonaga from the Northwest uh, Universities uh, joining us uh, this evening. Uh, good evening, Prof, and tell me how you're doing. Uh, good evening, Shafat. No, I'm fine over here in parts of Strom. The weather is fine and... Uh, the academia are starting to pick up, so everything is fine. Yes, sir, Prof. We look at many things happening in the world, and perhaps let's look at locally. Locally, we find that the unions are not, you know, are not so united anymore. There's a lot of, you know, tension between them. You look at the Communist Party also having tensions within the ranks, and now NUMSA and so forth. Prof, it seems as if you know. Businesses are closing, businessmen are complaining, and, uh, you know, you looked at uh, Toyota, there was a a court case against them, and they lost it, and it seems as if uh, there's an apathy amongst, uh, you know, the um, businesses and uh, the unions. Uh, Perhaps the unions are not making as much as they wanted to, and uh, the unions are money-making machines themselves uh, than uh, worrying about the workers, because they're causing uh, more harm to the South African economy then good, Prof. Your thoughts? Uh, yes, but I think uh, your, your, your facts are stating and making the point that South Africa as a country is at the crossroads. And this is not only on a social level or economic level, it's also on a political level, literally all levels of life. I was just walking to our cafeteria to find it about 50% empty. Now, okay, it is holiday time, but I have never seen it in such a condition in the last, let's say, about 15 years. So many things are happening. You're absolutely right. The, the, the economy is falling apart. We can see the open spaces. When I'm driving through towns and other places, we can see... Uh, the people in trouble sitting on the corners of streets asking for work with an unemployment rate of 46%. You're talking about the labor unions and the trade unions. Yes, indeed, they are in trouble. They are fragmenting. There's no doubt about it. But the whole, let's call it the broad church of the ANC, is also falling apart and disintegrating. There are factions all over the place. I just had a very senior ANC person here in my office, and he told me in our province, where there are coalition politics, things are still working to a certain extent. But where the ANC is in control alone, there's serious trouble. For example, the Sabotla, that is Lichtenberg, where there are in practice now two official managers uh, for the municipality. So yes, things are falling apart. We have seen the tension internationally and the impact this have on South Africa, just looking at the petrol and the diesel prices and what is going on with food prices at the moment. Our interest rates were put up last uh, uh, think yesterday with comma 75%. So Shafat indeed It is a challenging environment. The ANC is building up to a conference. Yesterday we had another assassination of a mayor in Limpopo. So indeed a violent 
unstable, uncertain political environment. You know, Prof, you talk about a violent, uncertain political environment, and uh, many have said, and uh, many that have spoken to, had uh, said uh, that under the Zuma regime, you know, we had some law and order in that uh, the violence wasn't, uh, you know, out of control like how it is now and the murder and so forth. And uh, perhaps even our borders were more, uh, you know, there's more security there. What's your thoughts on that, Prof? Or was the Zuma really, uh, you know, better than CR? Shafat, uh, I think uh, we need to differentiate on a number of levels. I think any leader has its pros and its cons in terms of leadership style. The one positive thing of Jacob Zuma was his ability to take decisions. And that seems not to be the case with Ramaphosa. But if we look at the period of the Zuma administration, it is referred to as the eight or nine lost years. And it is absolutely the case. He broke down the country and the institutions of the state where we formally become a weak state and on certain levels a failed state. Then Ramaphosa came in against the tide, to put it that way. He won the election. Yes, there were electoral fraud involved. And he won the election and he tried to turn this ship around. And unfortunately, this didn't happen. Unfortunately, what happened was that the situation deteriorated even further. And I won't put this all before Ramaphosa. I think he had a legacy that was really a very, very negative legacy. And he need time. And my take on it is, if we would get South Africa on course, we are going to need at least another 10 years. But then we need to be prepared to take the decisions. And that is what I am missing. And Shafat, my take on South African politics at the moment is, like the late 80s, when F.W. de Klerk and his criticized from many corners, stood up and said, we cannot continue with this dispensation. There's a need for fundamental reform of the apartheid system. It is now time that an ANC leader stand up and say it is time for fundamental reform of this corrupt, state-captured system. We are talking, somebody uh, referred to it as transformational in nature. You can give it many, many names. But it's time for fundamental reform. And we need the leader to take that decision. And my concern is that Mr. Ramaphosa at the moment is under huge pressure as a result of the Pala Pala scandal, or so-called, or let's call it an incident rather than a scandal because it is still under investigation. But yes, it put pressure on him. He had to dealt with the whole COVID episode, which was also negative for the economy. So it is difficult circumstances. Now, I won't argue that it's all the fault of Cyril Ramaphosa, but what is absolutely true is that the situation deteriorated on most levels 
during the Cyril Ramaphosa term, maybe with the exception that at least in some institutions, he tried to rebuild the institutions, he tried to to create a positive image of South Africa on the outside. But generally speaking, if you ask the ordinary person at the grassroots level, they will tell you it is the most difficult times in decades. Absolutely, Prof. And then, you know, a thought came through my mind, uh, the passing away of uh, Jesse Duarte, Yassi, uh, Yasmin Jesse Duarte. How would you read her, uh, you know, uh, you heard Gwed Mantashe and uh, many others saying uh, we have lost a matriarchal figure, someone that, you know, we listened to. She told us to keep quiet. We kept quiet and we listened. And in the end, she was the one that built all the bridges for us. She went to, Cyril uh, Ramaphosa said, in her ill health, she used to go around trying to build bridges and talking to the young people and they would listen to her. Your thoughts, sir, Prof? No, but to be honest with you, I, I don't know enough about a more personal situation and environment. But what I observe from the outside was that she was relatively a mediocre figure in the ANC. And let's quickly look at the history. She was one of the founder members of the UDF. She became part of the struggle, and then she served in a number of positions. And then uh, when Tawum Beki took over, she was aligned with Jacob Zuma, and she was taken out of the system. I think she ended up as an ambassador in Mozambique. And when Jacob Zuma reappeared after the Polikwane conference, he took her in and she became a loyal and prominent figure. And from what I understand was that she kept loyal to the Zuma group or the RETs, whatever you would like to call them or refer to to them. Uh, She kept loyal to that line until the end. And but I think her health, one of the main reasons for her health condition was the internal situation in the ANC and her inability to dealt with these conflicts. To me, it's quite clear that she was not in a position to bring the conflicting parties together and to get some sort of a process going. What I understand was that she was relatively good when it comes to administration and some say finances, but I will also question the finance thing because I know the ANC as an organization is in serious trouble and uh, yet again this month they weren't able to pay the salaries of uh, their workers at Letulios and uh, as a result of that they would like to boycott the, the, the policy conference that should take place towards the end of this month. But I'm reading her as more of an average person, maybe working a lot behind the scenes, not a prominent political figure, but I can understand that there was a lot of attachment towards her and uh, that uh, she did make a huge contribution to the struggle and to the ANC, especially during the Zuma time. 
Yes, uh, Prof, uh, during her funeral, we saw that uh, there were handshakes all around uh, between, uh, you know, big uh, foes. Uh, this is how it was, uh, uh, you know, Supra and all this uh, shaking hands with the uh, Ramaphosa. What did you make of that? Uh, you know, you could actually see that there was the RET group there in classes uh, in Kosozana, Jlamini, Zuma. And uh, someone had to say this. They said, yeah, they united uh, during the funeral and, uh, you know, hope that they took a lesson that one day they have to go. But... Uh, uh, in, in reality, ANC is not like that, uh, Prof. Yeah, Shafat, uh, at the moment, the conflict and the violence in the ANC is probably the worst I have seen it in a long time, and that is an ongoing process for at least decades now. But the point, when you look at a politician and you look at the type of skills a politician need to be an actor or an actress is probably one of the most important characteristics. And it's also interesting that the current president of the Ukraine, Zelensky, is an actor. Ronald Reagan was an actor. And it seems uh, together with the social media and all the media processes in this information world we are living that to act correctly to the right audience is a very important requirement. And what we have seen there is people just greeting each other. But I think it is a greeting like a greeting between Alexander Usyk and AJ Joshua, the two big heavyweight boxers that are going to fight it out on the 20th of August uh, next month. So I think it is something of this, but without any doubt, I cannot see that the relationship between the RET groups and the Ramaphosas can be restored. But yes, I think uh, they, they did create the best role they decide under a certain set of circumstances. Yeah, Prof, uh, totally agreed. And as you said, they all are actors. And uh, you spoke about, uh, you know, presidents and uh, vice presidents and many that were actors and the actor for the whole world. And uh, then uh, the important thing, we look at uh, the energy crisis and uh, the crisis, uh, you know, where uh, it is said uh, that, uh, well, I think uh, Greg Mantasha said, you know, it's, uh, it will be good to have a second uh, energy uh, SIU or, you know, uh, private energy company supplying energy to the country. And, you know, they had, uh, you know, if you look at ESCOM, Prof, we always said this, if they maintained it, there wouldn't be any crisis. And others have said uh, this crisis was manipulated and deliberately done. And the director spoke about uh, there being a mafia controlling the whole uh, ESCOM, you know, um, the, the whole ESCOM brigade. And uh, this is what caused uh, all the... Uh, you know, uh, under, for, uh, the, this very ill uh, situation that we're in. And uh, what's your thoughts on that, Prof? Uh, I don't know. Who do we believe in, in, in this whole scenario? Well, uh, Shafat, let's start from a historical point of view. If I, don't know, if I find it difficult to understand something, sometimes the answer is lying in, in, in the history. And if we go back in the history of Esco, it was established under colonial rule, specifically apartheid. I think Van der Beel played a very important role. And it was at one point in time, one of the biggest utilities in the world. In the early 90s, ESCOM produced electricity 
at the lowest cost in the world. It was a, a, an institution that has made a lot of money for the government. There was no local structure that was not, from an electrical point of view, sustainable. We exported electricity to all the neighboring countries, despite the wars that were going on. And then we entered 1994, and immediately uh, the, the utilities, all of them, and the civil service at large, were targeted in terms of transformation, achieving racial-orientated targets or demographic targets, representativity is the word people are using. The result was uh, people leaving the company, not in a position to, uh, to do the work. The, the, the firm just went down and down. And then under the Mbeki term, there was an assessment made. And, you know, the guy was a, with the name Van Hirden was the scenario developer for ESCO. And I had him at the University of the Free State. That was in the early 2000s. And he told us the scenarios. They show Mbeki. And Mbeki's argument was, what is in it for the ANC? And at the end of the day, they had the contracts with Madupi and Kosili. And we know what went on there. There were mismanagement. There was financial mismanagement, corruption, uh, capture of structures, and the system start falling apart to the extent that it cannot continue. They even restarted outdated uh, electricity institutions to help produce electricity. Not going the way of opening up the market, said we uh, give opportunity to people to deliver electricity, help us, we are in trouble. No, we would like to control it. And they are now running it completely in the ground. What happened is there's a mafia structure that even sabotaged the institution for political purposes. And my assessment is that this had to do with the internal conflict in the ANC to get people to, to mobilize against the government. I have no doubt about it. We need to know about internal contracts. We know about the whole context of state capture, the role the Guptas played in this regard, etc., etc. But the fact of the matter is now when Montage and others come and say they need another ESCOM. If you cannot maintain one of the best institutions of its sort in the world, how will you build a new one that's going to function better? It is like the old organization of Africa unity. It fall apart and then they create the African Union and that is not uh, even better than the previous one. So, Shafat, my take on it is that we have a serious management problem. I just read an article before your phone call that Gwede Montage argued that the Reiter was the wrong appointment for ESCOM. 
Now, if you look at the arguments of the writer, the writer said, help us to manage ESCO. What do we need? We need political will. We need a decision. And you must go follow through on your decision. If you tell us we must get the money from municipalities, then we should go that way. And we should take away all the illegal connections, and you must provide the safety so that we are not under attack of the community or whatever the case may be. But there the government is absent. So at the end of the day, there's corruption from the inside, there's sabotage on the other side, uh, they cannot do their job. How can you manage an institution under these circumstances? At the core is a lack of political will to act decisively under difficult circumstances, Shafat. And I think in a way that is the narrative, not only for ESCO, but also for the post office. I have recently listened to Barnes and his assessment of what is going on in the country. He was a previous head of the post office. Look what happened to what we called Omscore. Look what happened to Transnet. Our whole railway system is in total decay and collapse. So Shafat, what we are seeing is that the ANC as a government has ran this country into the ground at all levels to the extent that we are now at the grassroots level, try to rebuild our state by providing our own electricity for a home, by uh, buying a yo-yo tech, by identifying schools where you can get your children to, maybe in some cases you create your own school, you build your own universities, because the state institutions are becoming more and more dysfunctional. And as the state is weakening, we are entering a period where instability is on the increase. We have the Samasamas uh, controlling the old mines, some of them fighting the police in a vicious way. Just earlier today, I heard about the fighting in, in Jubaton that is outside Klerksdorp, where the mafias with AK-47s are basically fighting the police. And that is a municipality that has a debt of 1,1 billion. And the majority of the debt is coming from a place like Juberton. So this is South Africa 2022. And that is why I am saying we need fundamental reform. We need strong leadership, but we also need to bring people together in an attempt to bring about the necessary changes. Yes, sir, Prof. Talk to me about the Koroba, uh, Koroba Basa Dam. Talk to me about the infrastructure built by apartheid government. Uh, talk to me about Kuburg. Talk to me about those uh, beautiful roads uh, that were built by uh, the, uh, the apartheid government. Talk to us about the stable economy that we had. Talk about, as you said, Armscore. You talk about Cecil. All this was done under the uh, tutelage of the apartheid government where uh, they performed at the optimum when it came to science and technology. 
and, uh, you know, engineering. They were perhaps one of the best in Africa, maybe rated very highly in the world. But show me one, just one development or one uh, good thing that uh, the ANC government in 30 years, what have they given to South Africa? I mean, uh, uh, Julius Malema, I think I sent you that clip. He said, you know, where my grandmother grew up, there was a hospital, and that hospital was given to us uh, by the apartheid government, and uh, they ran that hospital. So, Hello? Uh, uh, Prof, you can hear me? Okay, it seems like, uh, yeah, we uh, just... Uh, yes, we just had some uh, gremlins there. Prof, uh, did you hear my question where I spoke about, you know, the uh, uh, apartheid government, the Koroba Basa Dam and the infrastructure and, uh, you know, all that they have given us. And even uh, Julius Malema himself has said uh, that, you know, his grandmother enjoyed the fruits of apartheid in that they, when they had their hospital, they were getting good treatment. And uh, it was the ANC when they came into power, they even ruined that hospital, Prof. Your thoughts on uh, that medley of a you know, um, uh, train of thought that ran through my mind, Prof? You know, Shafat, uh, I had many conversations uh, in the media world I am in with many interest groups. And what is an interesting tendency over the last, I would say it's about a decade now, I pick it up a decade ago, was the new assessment black people made about what happened during apartheid. And their vision, their interpretation of that is not as negative as what it was, let's say, during the 90s or the early 2000s. After what the ANC did in many ways, many people look back at these times and also see the good. And I'm not arguing that everything was good during apartheid. There were forms of discrimination, structural discrimination. There were many negative aspects, but at least there were positive aspects as well. And there I agree with Helen Ziller that if you look at the colonial context, it not only have negative aspects, it also positive components to it. You mention a number of things. And basically, we can take it a, a lot broader than that. You can look at the British colonial legacy in Southern Africa. You know, it's still interesting, despite everything Zimbabwe went through, their British schooling model is one of the best. Think about the Kariba Dam as a development, one of the biggest engineering projects in the world. You talk about Kahora Basa in Mozambique, coming to South Africa, and that is where we would like to be. During the apartheid time, they were primarily responsible after they find diamond and gold in the 1870s, they develop infrastructure in South Africa, building roads, building cities. We must take into consideration before colonization, there were no Joburg or Gauteng, there were no Durban, there were no, not even smaller towns. There were only what we call in Afrikaans, Stata. And that is a, a name for a, a township in the pre-colonial uh, environment. And if we look at some of the successes of the 
apartheid time. We talk about a place like Iskor for the development of iron. We talk about Sassel, which was absolutely a pioneering firm for its time. We talk about nuclear energy and the building of a nuclear bomb. In the early 70s, we had the technology to build a nuclear bomb in South Africa. It was before India, Pakistan, Israel, and a few others were in the position to build an atom bomb. It was only the Americans, the Russians, French, and the English, I think, and then South Africa. At that point in time, Pakistan had made certain breakthroughs on certain levels like Iran was doing over the past years and so on. So we had that technology. When we had the arms embargo against us, we built the own helicopters, we built the G5, G6 cannons, we built our own aeroplane. We fought that war. As Janni Geldenhuis said, he was in the position to stabilize 2,000 kilometers of borderline with 3,000 active soldiers. That was some of the performances we had during that time. We had a high growth rate. We had a system of separate development, which was uh, one of the names, uh, the better, the more well-known name was apartheid, but in fact it was a form of separate development that was developed under Vervoort. During that time of Vervoort, the economy grew anything between 5 and 8% a year. And as a result of that, we was the biggest, the strongest, and the most sophisticated economy on the African continent. You know, Shafat, at that point in time, I could remember when I was at high school, we were looking down on countries like New Zealand and Australia, not even in rugby terms, but also in terms of the manufacturing of arms, in terms of history, tradition. We basically believe that we were better as a country than they are. And at the moment, it is absolutely the opposite. Now, there is merit in the new dispensation. Not everything is negative. It brought a new constitution. It brought human rights. It brought a number of good things. But there's also huge failures. And at the moment, my biggest concern is the failure of the state as state. And I'm reading and I'm listening to what Tabum Beki yesterday said at the memorial of uh, Jesse Duarte, that we have no plan. We cannot address the challenges of South Africa. An Arab Spring is waiting for South Africa. He sounds very much like his brother predicting his Tunisia day uh, a few years back. But I believe he is right. People are currently very, very concerned about what is going on. And to me, at the core of the problem is what is going on in KZN. And I think after this weekend, we will have a better indication of the direction of things 
within the ANC as a result of the provincial conference of the ANC. But there's also the possibility of a violent outcome during that conference. Thank you for that, uh, Prof. You talk about the Arab Spring, and, you know, my mind goes back to the Arab Spring. You notice that uh, uh, Morsi, uh, Mohammed Morsi, was elected, uh, you know, democratically, and it was the Arab Spring that ushered in him. But uh, suddenly he was taken out of the, okay, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the equation and replaced by uh, a, a CC, CC who happened to be uh, someone that has implemented now, I believe, draconian rules in uh, Egypt, where he imprisons uh, journalists and so forth, and opposition are just put uh, in jail and the keys are thrown away. And it seemed as if the Arab Spring, Prof, didn't live up to expectations. Why do you think so, Prof? You know, Shafat, for many years I did research on a topic they call democratic transitions. And you know what is interesting about democracy? Democracy was never the product of a revolution. Democracy is the product of stable evolutionary growth. Let's look at the big revolutions of the world. And I'm not calling the American Revolution a revolution that was an internal revolt of some sort. But if you look at the biggest, well, most well-known revolution, at least, the French Revolution, produced Napoleon Bonaparte. The Russian Revolution produces the Bolsheviks and the communists and the Stalins of them. The Chinese Revolution produced Mao Zedong. So I can continue. The moment there is revolutionary instability, you cannot create an environment that is conducive for democracy. And at the moment, that is the reality of South African politics as well. We are at the point that we are asking ourselves the question, can we deal with all the rights and uh, uh, all the, the good things coming from democracy and the free world? Or do we need to act in a responsible way to balance it? An irresponsible way is to drive through Juberton with AK-47s shooting in the air just to show that you have power. Or corruption at the level where we call it state capture, where institutions are becoming dysfunctional. My problem with South Africa is that the state as state is falling apart. And sometimes people ask me about the state of democracy. Then I'm telling them democracy is a very small part of the bigger picture. The bigger picture is the state. And if the state is falling apart, you cannot expect the political system to work properly. And secondly, the government in a democracy is normally the elected part. How can the government, in distincting it from the bigger regime, how can it function in a proper way? Democracy is only concentrating on government. Our crisis is a regime crisis extended to the state as state. Therefore, the revolution 
if there's a revolution in South Africa, is going to destroy the state even more. And I had a very interesting argument during this week. We met with an, I met with a number of role players. I had to make a small presentation. And one of them was the, the person in charge of the FW, the Clark Foundation, uh, Mr. Dave Stewart. He's a well-known person coming from the FW, the Clark environment and foreign affairs. But he's a very uh, influential person, close contacts and everything. And he gave us the scenario. He's very concerned about the future of South Africa. And he made the point, if there's a constitutional crisis in South Africa, the Western Cape will just continue under the const current constitution and take over national duties. The point I like to make, Shafat, is South Africa is a fragile state. If we do not contain the forces, the social and political forces, we may see not only the collapse of government, we may see the collapse of the state. That is how serious I read the situation at the moment. And that is why I call on all South Africans to work for the common good because we have vested interests in this beautiful country and we have a duty to build it, not only the state, but also the nation, because in many ways the state is only an extension of the nation or the social world we are referring to. Absolutely, Prof. And, you know, then you look at the whole thing that's happening in the world and, you know, people are talking about uh, food crisis, food shortages. And many have said that Ukraine has been used as a pretext because you look at these conglomerates, uh, they are buying up all the food, uh, you know, production houses of the world. For instance, they buy off the rice fields in India and they burn three quarter and they keep a quarter of it and they flood the market with just a little bit of rice so that they can keep uh, food at, uh, at, at an optimum uh, price. And that every day, we find that food is being dumped into the ocean, and uh, there is a very sinister game uh, played in that. Prof, you have family members that are farming and uh, that are, you know, doing things like that. What is your take? Is this a, uh, uh, you know, they, they will call this a uh, conspiracy theory, but uh, many are giving, uh, you know, proof that this is what uh, these conglomerates are doing. And uh, how you read that, Prof? Well, uh, Shafat, my first take on it is that in every crisis, people are looking for opportunities. It's not always uh, normative and uh, sound principles, but they are trying to, to benefit from a situation. And with the war that is going on in the Ukraine, affecting the production of uh, maize and wheat, etc., there are real shortages, and it is becoming a political weapon. Think about the military strategist, Karl von Clausewitz. He always said that war is the continuation of foreign policy by making use of other means. That is the military. But outside the military, people are fighting each other with all the weapons to their uh, capacity. What is interesting is, at the moment, India is buying oil from, uh, from Russia as a result of the boycott from the West against Russia. So people are benefiting. I won't 
argue that there is a very huge conspiracy. I think there's a combination of opportunity and opportunists on the one side. There's the reality of war on the other side. And the third rule of the game is the economy and economic rules. The dumping of food has sometimes a lot to do with the logistics. For, uh, for argument's sake, it costs more to uh, get the food to a certain place than the value of the food. Then it's better to dump it. Now, there are a certain moral ethical context to that. I don't know I'm going, going into it at the moment. But uh, that are some of the rules I am reading this game. But what is going on at the moment, it seems as if Turkey was involved in coming to some sort of an agreement. I understand that there's a number of ships entering the Black Sea to safeguard uh, some of these uh, ships that are taking maize and wheat out of that area towards the rest of the world. So there are some changes on certain levels. I understand that some of the Russian ships are going away from some of these uh, harbors. And uh, so there are some diplomatic things going on. It's not all negative, but yes, food security is at risk. The other point I can make is that food security will always be at risk with a population that is growing. And just think about the statistic for Africa. In the next, it's about 15 to 20 years, the, South, the African population will increase by another 1 billion, 1,000 million people. How are we going to feed these people, Shafat? That's not a war situation. That is and the natural process that is going on in Africa. There are two end places for you, Southern Africa and Western Europe. So I think that food security is going to become more important, and under circumstances of war, it may end up in a... You make a lot of sense there, Prof. And, you know, perhaps the question to also pose is, uh, you know, I thought South Africa could benefit with the crisis in Ukraine. Perhaps, you know, our farmers will be getting uh, the, you know, uh, uh, the, the contracts of, of wheat and maize and so forth. What happened, Prof? Uh, you know, we were not ready or we're not ready because our, our boer farmers are still some of the finest in the world. Talk to us about that scenario, Prof. Uh, yes, without any doubt, there are opportunities. But now you must take into consideration a number of things. We come out, came out of one of the biggest droughts in the history of uh, South Africa. And uh, many of the farmers were in real trouble. And then we had two, maybe three seasons maximum where there was a lot of rain. Two of the seasons were fine raining seasons. But the last one this year was an extreme one in rainfall terms. To give you one example, I'm hunting near a farm near Kimberley, close to Campbell. They normally get between 300 and 400 millimeters a year. For this year, they receive 1,000 millimeter. And the same is applicable to parts of the Free State, 
At the moment, my son-in-law are still busy harvesting. It is very, very late in the year. So the internal conditions is not ideally suited. And what I understand is the price of maize is relatively high and is still on the increase. But what they are telling me is the cost factor is extremely high when it comes to specifically, but not exclusively, fertilizer on the one side and diesel on the other side. The input costs are of such a nature that they find it extremely difficult to uh, produce uh, goods in a productive, financial, sustainable way. So that is the internal context. But yes, I think there are opportunities. And if the state would go the other route and support the farmers with qualifications towards empowerment, I think we can really make a huge impact because some of the best agricultural land in South Africa, in the old so-called homelands, they are completely underutilized. And that is the problem we have at the moment. But yes, the opportunities are there, but internally we are not 100% ready to make maximum use of the opportunities. Yeah, Prof, we talk about uh, the crisis and the food crisis, the shortages. And uh, then a very important thing uh, that, you know, that really worries every country. You know, we talk about false uh, flag operations and uh, many will call that uh, conspiracy theories. And uh, many say, you know, there is bound to be false flag operations that will take place here in South Africa. It has taken place all over the world. And, you know, what's your thoughts on that, Prof? Will there be you know, something uh, drastic that will cause a civil war. I mean, there will be already, in, as Osama Mbeki said, there will be a spring, an Arab spring here, or an African spring. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Prof? Well, Shafat, uh, a lot depends on what the government will do and what will happen within the AFC. My take on it is that, yes, if we look at the social cluster and social cohesion or lack of social cohesion is your main criteria, then I must tell you we are in danger because the racial relationships are at a worst point I have seen. Just look at what happened during July last year in terms of black versus Indian. And I'm not talking about white versus black that is happening on a regular basis. So the race incidents are there. Economically speaking, we are talking about a 46% unemployment, an economy that is not growing. There is really people that are hungry. They are prepared to kill for food. Then we have political mobilization, identity politics, the type of politics that is used by groups like the BLF, the EFF, the ATM, the RET, and so on. And they are sometimes mobilizing on a racial basis. Already in terms of the security indexes I have seen, South Africa is very, very low in terms of stability. We are seen as one of the more unstable countries comparable to places like Afghanistan and Lebanon 
where there are active civil war going on. We must take into consideration that about 55 people are murdered daily in South Africa, and there are about 120-plus rape cases on a daily basis. So this is already the situation. Can it uh, uh, become worse? Yes, it can become worse, especially if politics are become actively involved. And that is my concern. What happened if Ramaphosa won on the one side or if he lose? What will happen to the ANC? What will happen to stability? What will happen to the core of the state? And that is what I think Tabum Beki and many others like Kalema Motlante and uh, I know a few other spokespersons also refer to this crisis. And many people are putting this crisis now before the door of Cyril Ramaphosa. And my concern is that he's quiet. What he did say was that he will put transformation in a higher gear. Now, I am afraid that is not going to help us. That is going to create the, even a bigger challenge than the current one. Yes, sir, Prof. You know, to exacerbate the problem of this country, and uh, we have the Dudula group. You remember them, uh, anti-foreigners and so forth. Uh, they want to uh, form a political party. And, you know, one would ask the question, where did they get the money from? I mean, politics is not cheaper, Prof. Well, Shifat, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. The question is, where will they get the money from? But the other side of the coin is they are making money within South Africa. And maybe, in a way, they are more financially sustainable than some of the black communities in South Africa. We know there is money around. We know we are funding ISIS from within South Africa. So there are financial potential that they can use. But what is at the core of the problem? It is people illegally coming into the country. And one of my students is a member of parliament. I always work with a figure of between three and uh, four million people illegally in South Africa. He told me parliament's official figure is at five million at the moment. Now, all the white Afrikaners, all the white people in South Africa, is, uh, that include Afrikaners, English, etc., aren't even five million. We are something like 4,5, 4,6 million. Now, we are talking about five million foreigners. That's a huge group. Now, the Duduma, Duduma group basically argue that these are job opportunities that were taken from the local community. And I disagree to a large extent with them. These are people coming in creating a job by either providing services or selling something. They are using the opportunities and they are taking the benefits from using the opportunities. It seems to me as if there are many communities in South Africa believing that they can sit back and wait. The state will provide and not following the approach that John F. Kennedy said we need. It's not what you, what the country can do for you. It's what you can do for the country. And they didn't follow that approach. But politically speaking, 
that the Duma movement is used by political groupings uh, for certain political outcomes. And I think it has to do with the destabilization of the South African state. And I won't be surprised if it has connections towards the point where uh, it may be to the benefit of certain groupings within the structures of the ANC. Yeah, Prof, I was quite intrigued. Uh, you said that uh, ISIS had been, uh, uh, I mean, they've been uh, funded by South Africa and so forth, or some South Africans, because, you know, there are clips uh, where Hillary Clinton and both uh, Barack Obama, uh, he also said, we fund them, we train them. Speaking about ISIS, uh, it was uh, created by them to, you know, fight in Syria and so forth and other places around the world. And uh, this was the making of them and also Mossad. And, you know, many call ISIS, ISIS, Israeli Secret Intelligence Service. And when ISIS, uh, I mean, they they can go to any part of the world within a split second. And how are they moving in all these artilleries, uh, these uh, vehicles they have? I mean, Prof, we need to look deep uh, and read in between the lines. Uh, these are perhaps funded by the powers. And then we start talking about false uh, flag operations. Here's something to think about, Prof. Your thoughts? Uh, Shafat, yes. I'm not sure where ISIS came from, what is its precise purpose. But I'm asking myself the question, why are they gaining such an influence in places like, for example, northern uh, Mozambique, as well as higher up towards uh, the center of Africa, there must be some sort of an appeal they are making. Oil and lithium. only be... Oil and lithium, Prof. Excuse me. Oil and lith- uh, lithium. This is lithium. where it's all, and the gas. That may be the case, Shafat, but they are a force to reckon with. I just made the point that they are funded from somewhere in South Africa, just telling us that foreign influences are prominent here and uh, we are, we have a situation and in some way I can understand the reaction of local people. But my concern is it has to do with the scenario of uh, getting the government to look very, very weak and then create an environment of uncertainty by using foreigners. And then the second point I like to make is uh, in the category of foreigners, I have heard the Duduma people saying it's not only foreigners like Zimbabweans, people from Mozambique, Ghana, etc. It includes the, the minorities of South Africa, like the Indian category, like the white people, the settlers, etc. Prof, absolutely brilliant. I know you have many pressing engagements. Thank you very much for being with us uh, this evening. You have a blessed day ahead, Prof. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Andre Duval. Yes, sir, people. In a fascinating conversation there with uh, Professor Andre Duvanaga. I'd like to thank uh, Lucolo for brilliant engineering uh, this evening. And uh, keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming and a lot of knowledge coming through from the team and I. Till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.